Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You know, there are lots of terms that float around there that ostensibly refer to the same basic phenomenon. The idea is you're getting stuck in this negative thought loop. I genuinely think chatter is one of the big problems we face as a species. And I say this not to sensationalize or exaggerate. I say this based on what I know of the data, because if you look at what happens when we get stuck in those negative thought loops, it undermines us in areas of our lives that I would argue most of us care a great deal about. I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild, a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. When I wrote First We Make the Beast Beautiful, my book about anxiety, I identified at the time that modern day Western anxiety is mostly in our heads. The real source of anxiety today is rarely some kind of external threat. Instead, it's our inner chatter or our monkey mind. We ruminate on something that's, yes, legitimately worrying. This makes us more anxious. Then we get anxious and ruminate some more about that and on and on it goes into some kind of paralyzing spiral. I read somewhere that we talk to ourselves in our head at a rate equivalent to speaking 4,000 words a minute. And the comparison was made with the American president's State of the Union address, which usually runs to about 6,000 words and lasts more than an hour. Just reading this makes me exhausted and anxious. When writing the book and looking into all of this, I came across a bunch of studies that spoke to the phenomenon and also provide different ways to fix or modulate the situation. Now, today's guest was at the forefront of that research. Ethan Cross is one of the world's leading experts on controlling the conscious mind. He's a professor at the University of Michigan Psychology Department and director of the Emotion and Self-Control Laboratory. He's consulted to the White House and he regularly appears on various American talk shows talking all things in a voice. He's also just published a new book, Chatter, The Voice in Our Head, Why It Matters and How to Harness It. Now, from time to time here on Wild, I do like to go back and revisit a wild idea or theme or person I cover in one of my books and, and then to go in deeper with them. On this occasion, I wanted to get Ethan on because I'd seen he just released this new book, which, as the subtitle suggests, covers scientifically backed and new techniques for harnessing or artfully taming the beast that is our mind on fire. I tend not to get too life hacky on wild. That's just not what I do here. But on this occasion, I make an exception and we cover off a bunch of techniques that, as always, do not try to eradicate the inner voice or beat it into submission, 
but can instead have us modulating ourselves so that this inner voice can work for us best. All right, let's get to the conversation with Ethan Cross. Ethan Cross, it's so lovely to have you here and to speak to you from the other side of the world. Great to be here, Sarah. I must say, hearing about your morning, I am very jealous sitting in frosty Ann Arbor. Well, yeah, poor Ethan had to sit there while I was trying to shake out the water in my ear. I'd just run across the road and jumped in the ocean at dawn to to make it back in time to do this interview. So, yes, it's quite the picture that you're seeing here with me, like shaking my ear out with wet hair. I've got to say that it, it really seeing you actually like visibly shake the water out of your ear, it just it just magnifies the comparison even more. So um, <laughs> I, I'm glad you're able to do it. A wonderful motif. You've been working in this area of, I guess, the inner voice for about 20 years. And I'm just wondering, have you been able to determine during this time why we in fact have an inner voice? We have. The inner voice is one of these interesting phrases that I think many of us are really familiar with. We hear it used in lots of different contexts, but we very rarely receive an actual formal definition of what it is. And so the way scientists like myself think about what our inner voice is, when I use that term, I'm referring to our ability to silently use language to reflect on our lives. And it turns out that that ability is a kind of Swiss army knife of the human mind. It's a multi-purpose tool, lets you do lots of different things. The most basic thing your inner voice does for you, it's part of what we call our verbal working memory system. This is a basic, basic feature of the human mind that does something really powerful for us. It lets us keep information active for short periods of time. So if I go to the grocery store and I start walking down the aisle and I forget what I was supposed to get and I think to myself, oh shit, what was I supposed to get? And then I repeat the the list in my head, apples, cheese, broccoli. That's me using my inner voice. So that's one thing it lets you do. Another thing your inner voice lets you do, it lets you simulate and plan. I bet you give a lot of presentations, public Mm -hmm. presentations, that fair assumption to make. So tell me if this sounds familiar. Before you give your presentations, do you ever go over what you're going to say in your head the morning before your, your showtime? I relive the entire thing and even preparing for this conversation, you know, sort of 10 minutes beforehand as I'm, you know, getting myself ready, I'm rehearsing the conversation I'm going to have. I even envisage what you're saying and sort of have a conversation backwards and forwards. I've always found that really comforting. Before maths exams, I would actually visualise but also with an inner voice go through sort of the mindset of where I need to be at, you know, and and I've always had to go to the bathroom before anything big, sit in a cubicle for five minutes and let my inner voice do its thing. What you're describing is a process that I engage in and countless others do as well. So before presentation, I'll go over everything I'm going to say beginning to end and then I'll, I'll try to imagine what is what is the most obnoxious audience member? What question are they going to ask me? And then I'll, I'll respond. And so what I'm doing there is I'm simulating and planning. This is something that is unique to human beings, our ability to simulate and plan to the degree that I'm describing. We use our inner voice to do that. We do this before dates, before interviews, before presentations. I'll give you two more very quick attributes that it, it characterize it. I like to exercise. I know you do as well. When I'm exercising, I like to exercise in a social context with other people. And I love, love, love having an instructor tell me to do things that I 
otherwise wouldn't do myself. And they tell me to do things and I smile back at them and I nod my head. But in my mind, I say things that I would not dare say out loud directed towards them because they're having me do painful things. Oh, all sorts of experts like you son of a, why the, why don't you try doing this? Right. So I'm, I'm, I'm giving it back in my head. And then when I'm trying to do the exercise, I'm coaching myself along. Come on, man, you've got this six more reps. I'm counting down six, five, four. Don't you give up. You keep going. Elite athletes do this all the time. We're activating that coach inside us. That's our inner voice as well. And then the last thing your inner voice does for you that I want to share is in some ways, I'd like to describe it as the most magical feature of our inner voice. It is the great storyteller. Like we live our lives and we experience all sorts of adversity that we don't have a roadmap to navigate. Like, I don't know why this person doesn't like me or rejects me or this job doesn't work out. And when we experience that kind of adversity, what we often do is we stop. We try to make sense of it. Why did this happen? What does it say about who I am and where I'm going to be tomorrow or next year or wherever? And when we ask ourselves those questions, we use our inner voice to start creating a story that makes sense of our experiences and that ultimately shapes our understanding of who we are. So your inner voice helps you do all those things. You wouldn't want to live life without it. And I I really think you want to know how to harness it. Yeah, yeah. I think we often think our inner voice is problematic because it can bog us down and we associate it with that chattering of the mind. I think in your book, you reference that young children learn to direct their emotions and manage their emotions by talking to themselves, right? And we know this, they talk out loud. They, you know, kind of in a whisper and they, you know, do the whole you know, admonish themselves or repeat the encouragements that they've got from their parents and they talk through their emotions. And you can see how it works with children. They're practising or starting to understand and modulate their reactions to the world. And it would seem from your description that we continue to do that. We're constantly practising, harnessing, shaping the way we react to the world with our inner voice. That's right. So, you know, there are certain theories out there that suggest that one of the ways we actually learn to control ourselves is by using language. So if you've been around little kids, you've probably observed them doing this weird thing where they they talk out loud to themselves and they're often repeating things that their parents have told them. So I have two daughters. They're a little bit older now, but when they were younger, you know, I, I would just see them in the corner playing with their dolls and say, well, you know, Sarah shouldn't do this or else she's going to get in trouble. And Sarah needs to first do this before she can play with her iPad. And so what scientists have shown is that this is the way that we teach kids self-control. Like parents or caretakers say things to kids. Kids then start rehearsing and directing those messages to themselves. Now, at some point, they don't do this out loud. Our voice It goes inside, but we still talk to ourselves internally and we often do it to manage ourselves, to regulate our emotions. It's really interesting, Ethan. I still will talk out loud when I'm in nature. So I do a lot of hiking and hiking for me is a very self-regulating experience. I use it to regulate my anxiety and it's my most proven tool. And I've written a lot about it and gone through all the science and the studies on it. But I do often speak out loud when I'm hiking. It's really interesting. I allow my inner voice to come out. And when I'm doing it, I'm kind of thinking, 
am I crazy? Am I going mad here? Or it doesn't matter. Nobody can hear me. I'm in the middle of nowhere. I sort of think that I'm probably accessing my childhood. You know, I'm in a childlike experience where I'm playing in nature as I sort of, you know, hike through the bush. But yeah, it, it seems to access that side of myself. It's quite a soothing experience. Yeah. Well, so first of all, like nature, green space exposure, I mean, is is a, a freely available and remarkably effective tool. And it's just astounding to me how long it has taken scientists to demonstrate that empirically. It's one of the tools I talk about in my book, too, for managing our inner voice. It, it, it really does work. With respect to speaking out loud as a tool to manage ourselves, and what I tell people is that if that works for you, keep doing it. The one caveat, of course, is you probably don't want to do it when you're in a public space because it powerfully violates social norms. So we have this really powerful tool of the human mind. It's called our inner voice, our ability to silently use language to reflect on our lives. It helps us all the time, except there are cases when we experience some difficulty, we reflexively try to use this tool to get us out of the problem. So we try to think ourselves through the problem, but then we get stuck in a negative thought loop. That's what I call chatter. It is the dark side of the inner voice and it is truly problematic. And I wanna pause on that because I think before we move on to some of the techniques that we can use to tame you know, our inner chatter, let's talk when chatter goes dark, yeah. you know. And this is something that I picked up on in my book, First We Make the Beast Beautiful, how rumination, and you call it chatter, rumination is when we repeat the thoughts over and over again. We get into a loop and it's when that loop just won't stop and it impacts our lives. We stay in the loop. It is actually the modern take on anxiety, Anxiety was generally a stress response that got us to flee or fight or freeze, as the case may be, in order to survive a threat. Today, of course, so much of what we stress about is our inner dialogue, right? And I talk about it in First We Make the Beast Beautiful, that so much of modern anxiety is us getting anxious about being anxious. And then we get anxious about being anxious about being anxious and down this horrible death spiral we go. And that's sort of how I came across your work because you talk about this notion of rumination and the fact that there's been studies that have been done to show that anyone with anxiety or depression, they do tend to veer towards more rumination than the average person. But when they ruminate, it makes their anxiety and depression worse. And there's this kind of terrible catch-22 that goes on. And I think there was a study done on teenagers that showed this, that rumination makes us think we're doing something, right? We're, we're doers, we're human doers, you know, and we feel that we're actually solving the problem in part if we keep ruminating because at least we're doing something and it's, you know, the problem itself, the original problem seems, seems unsolvable, but at least this ruminating keeps us busy. Have I got that sort of right? That's that right. sort of encapsulates how rumination and anxiety and depression get caught up in this terrible, terrible loop. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, there are lots of terms that float around there that ostensibly refer to the same basic phenomenon, rumination, worry, perseveration. The idea is you're getting stuck in this negative thought loop, right? And the intuition to, to try to work through our problems makes a lot of sense because most of the time, we're really good at doing that. We can use our mind to solve problems and work through them. We're taught how to do that from the youngest of ages, right? You got a problem in school, think the solution. 
try to work it through. But as we move on in time, we often get stuck. And so chatter just refers to that process of getting stuck in those negative thought loops. And I've been on record saying this, and I stand by this comment I'm going to give you. I genuinely think chatter is one of the big problems we face as a species. And I say this not to sensationalize or exaggerate. I say this based on what I know of the data, because if you look at what happens when we get stuck in those negative thought loops, it undermines us in three areas of our lives that I would argue most of us care a great deal about. One thing it does is it makes it really hard for us to think and perform optimally. We only have so much attention that we could focus at any given moment in time. And if all of your attention is consumed by your chatter, it doesn't leave anything left over to do the things we often want or need to do, like process the information in front of us, read the book, listen to the person talking, right? Pay attention to our kids. Can't do it because our mind is somewhere else. This is why when I ask people, hey, have you ever had the experience of reading a couple of pages in a book? Under oath, you would swear that you've read the material. When you get to the end, you don't remember a damn thing you've read. Every single hand in the audience goes up every time I give that example. That's how fundamental this is. Chatter can sink us there. It can lead us to choke under pressure. It can lead to things like paralysis by analysis. We overthink things to the point we can't do basic things like choose the you know entree we want on mm. the restaurant menu or make the decision about what paint to use in our homes or sink the free throw when we're on the, the basketball court. Yeah, that's really interesting. You spend some of your time looking at venting. And, you know, we're told, aren't we, when we've got a problem we're struggling with on the inside, you know, we're encouraged to go out there into the world and vent, tell people about it, you know, don't keep it to yourself. And we do intuitively have a compulsive need to share negative thoughts with other people. That's kind of what we do. It generally results in a broadcasting of, you know, how shit we're finding everything. But it's counterintuitive because, as you say, it will then put people off. And so I think you encourage, or at least journalists who've reported on your work have extrapolated it as being, as being so, that, you know, sometimes keep stuff to yourself, like shut, shut up sometimes when you're ruminating too much. Have I got that right? Or have the journalists whose work I've read about your book, have they got that right? Well, I'm, I might put it a little differently. The way to make sense of this, and I think this is actually a really important take home from the book and the science. Because as you said, so many of us were conditioned to not keep things inside, to get it out. If people feel the need to express their emotions, which a lot of us do, the best kinds of conversations do two things. First, it is important for the person you're talking to, to learn about what you're going through and for you to share what happened. But at a certain point in the conversation, the person you're talking to ideally transitions to start working with you to broaden your perspective, to help you problem solve and work through the experience. They might share with you how they've dealt with the experience themselves. They might ask you, what do you think you should do? How have you dealt with in the past? And so over the course of the conversation, you want to gently shift from just listening and empathizing and validating to start helping broaden the other person's perspective. That is the art of being a good chatter advisor. And depending on the person and the issue that they're struggling with, some people need more time just sharing their feelings before they're ready to transition into have the, having their perspective be broad. And the more intense the experience, the more time they need just sharing. 
And so the advice I, I often give to people is if you want to talk about a problem, find someone who is skilled at being a good chatter advisor. And if you're not sure, think about like the last time you went to this person, did they just get you to ruminate about the problem together? Or did they actually listen, validate, but then help you actually work through it? So that's tip number one. Tip number two is there are no one size fits all solutions for people when it comes to their chatter. And I actually think that it's a tremendous problem that many of us think that, hey, there's this one thing we should do. It's going to help everyone across the board. The same is true about talking with other people. So if you don't feel compelled to talk to someone else, avail yourself of other tools. You don't have to do that to be well-adjusted and chatter-free. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So yeah, it, there's a bunch of paradoxes going on there for, for people who are ruminators. And I talk about this quite a bit, how there are so many paradoxes and cruel ironies, I call them, associated with anxiety. You know, right when you need the help, you push people away. Right when you need to vent and get that support, it can often end up alienating you. The other thing is we're seeking out empathy from others when we vent. And we, I guess in some ways, trying to soothe ourselves. We're trying to soothe ourselves from the psychological effects of what we're going through. But at the same time, it actually derails us from sorting out the problem. We get so caught in that vortex of going over and over in the problem. And then you know, the person we're talking to takes us further into that vortex. And so it's just this terrible paradox, right? And it seems counterintuitive, but as you say, we need to be aware of it when we're ruminating. We need to make sure that we're venting to the right people so that we can move on to better thoughts that can get us out of the situation. And the mindfulness thing is also counterintuitive, right? Like, all right, meditation is meant to be great for all of us, but I know that you talk about this obsession or fixation on being in the moment as a way to fix chattering thoughts. I know you say that that's not always the right way to go. And I'll just share you um, an interesting anecdote. Many years ago, I interviewed His Holiness the Dalai Lama, right? And I was told, look, he does tend to ramble. So limit your question to one question because he'll take an hour to answer it. So I fretted about what that one question would be, like 
literally for days. My inner voice was going mad with all the possible ways that I could ask a question and what's the best question and do, am I qualified to ask one question? What is the one question that is most important to humanity? Anyway, I just had to go with the present moment that I was in, which was, you know, your holiness, well, how the hell do I stop the chatter in my mind? And you know what his answer was? Ah, don't bother. He said, ah, waste of time. He said, if I sat on a, and this is my Dalai Lama voice, if I sat in a cave on a mountain for two years and tried to meditate my way into quietness, maybe I achieve it. But waste of time. I'm way better off, he said, doing what I do, which is traveling the world and preaching effective altruism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I suspect you have a similar take as his holiness. Well, you know, I think his holiness is very pragmatic. And do I think it's possible to never experience chatter? I have yet to meet someone who has told me that that is the case. I'm someone who has been studying to these tools for you know over 20 years, but I've been thinking about them for much, much longer based on just growing up and experiences I've had with people in my life. I think I'm really good at managing chatter as a function of knowing about these tools. I can detect, I know when it's about to come. I've got plans for to implement different tools. So I'm pretty skilled in that regard. And I tend to nip it in the bud before it escalates, but I still experience it at times. So I think this goal of never experiencing it is an unrealistic goal. And that's a great segue to bring us back to this idea of being in the moment all the time. Being in the moment can be a wonderful experience, but the human mind is not designed, like we didn't evolve to be in the moment. There are organisms that are constantly in the moment. You want to guess what, what some of those organisms are? An amoeba? <laughs> amoeba. Cockroach is one of my all-time favorites, right? Like cockroach is, is in the moment for as far as we know. It is just, you know, moment to moment basis, navigating, staying away from people like me who throw shoes and uh, unleash these audible shrieking screams when I see it. A cockroach is in the moment all the time. We have the ability to travel in time in our minds. And this is a remarkable ability. Like my ability to leave the moment and savor what happened a couple of days. So a couple of days ago, my family and I um, went to Europe for the first time since the pandemic ended. And you know, I've got two kids and just being on vacation with my kids nowadays, they're tweens. Uh, it's, it's wonderful. It's the only time we really get to be together all the time. I've been, I've been thinking about in concrete detail what we did on that trip since we've gotten home. I'm going back in time to savor mm. a past experience. I'm also, we're going away in the summer. I'm already fantasizing about what we're going to do. I'm also traveling in time in my mind frequently to learn from my mistakes. Like I make mistakes seemingly all the time. A foot goes in my mouth repeatedly, sometimes two, or I botch a project. I reflect on it, not to get hung up in it, but to, to mm. figure out what I did wrong so I can improve myself. I also anticipate problems that might occur in the future so I don't experience them. So, so that's all mental time travel. And I would argue that this is, this is the foundational skill that allowed us to do things like build pyramids, build spaceships, develop vaccines, and you name the innovation. It's about thinking abstractly about the world. One solution is to refocus on the present. That can be very useful as a tool. 
But there are also like 30 other things that we can do. And if you ask me, if we're only giving people that one tool to refocus on the moment, I think we're limiting ourselves mm. needlessly. It's like telling someone to just do push-ups to be physically fit to the exclusion of the uh, you know countless other physical exercises that exist that we can use to live a more physically fit life. And, and so that's my take on all of this. Yeah, yeah. I think that's what His Holiness was also picking up on. He was trying to diffuse the Western world's obsession with this idea of, of, of living in the moment. But look, that's a nice segue to the, the fixes, the ways that we can actually modulate our inner voice so that it serves us and we can be wonderful humans who, I don't know, let's not say invent rocket ships, but improve the world and improve ourselves as humans, right? Our self-reflection can actually make us better people without going down into that terrible vortex of or the loop you know the anxious loop yeah could talk us through some of your favorite fixes at the end of the book you outline quite a number of them what are the your favorites so there are lots of tools out there and the real challenge i think we face is to learn about what these tools are and then to, to figure out what are the combinations that work best for us given our uniqueness in this world we know that different tools work for different people in different situations. The very first thing I do when I experience chatter or detect detective brewing is I use something called distant self-talk. I start using my name, silently using my name to coach myself through a problem like I would give advice to someone else. All right, Ethan, how are you going to manage this situation? My name, and I use a second person pronoun you. One of the things we know about human beings is that we are much better at giving advice to others than we are giving advice to ourselves. The reason for that is we have distance from other people's problems. They're not happening to us, so we can be more objective about the right. circumstances. We can use our mind, all the resources, to be sophisticated in how we think about the problem without being overwhelmed by the chatter. Distance self-talk capitalizes on this mechanism. When you use your name and the second person pronoun you to coach yourself through a problem, you're basically using language to shift your perspective. Most of the time that we use names and words like you, we use those parts of speech when we're thinking about other people. You is like pointing a verbal finger at someone else. And so when you use your name to think about yourself, it's like it's someone else over there that you're talking about. And that makes it much easier for us to dole out wise, emotionally intelligent pieces yes. of, of advice. I know that Marilyn Monroe used to talk about herself in the third person and it was a way to distance herself from her persona. Mm. It was sort of a, a, a way that she could actually have her own identity. And I think doesn't Trump also speak of himself in the third person? And I think I have read before that that's a narcissistic trait, you know, of, of his amongst many. Yes. So we have data that can – so, yes, Trump does it quite a bit. I like to point out that psychological processes don't have favorite political parties. So yes, Trump does it, but you know who else does? Youngest person ever won the Nobel Peace Prize, Malala Yousafzai. We've actually done research to see, is there a, an association between the tendency to use distant self-talk, use your own name or second person for you to work through a problem and narcissism? And we don't actually see any correlations between that tendency. What we do see is a lot of people reflexively engage in this type, this way of talking to themselves. They often do it without even knowing it. They just do it spontaneously over the course of their lives. 
Salvador Dali did this, Julius Caesar, Bob Dole, and countless other examples, Jennifer Lawrence. And what we've done in the lab is demonstrated how useful it can be for helping people manage their emotions. Now, one of the reasons why this is the first thing I do is because it's really easy to do. So we've actually done some brain science experiments on this, and we see that the benefits that you accrue, the emotion regulatory benefits that people derive from using this tool, you see it in a matter of seconds. That's how quick the shift in perspective can be. And so a lot of the tools that are out there are more effortful. That doesn't mean we shouldn't use them. So meditation is more effortful. I've got to find time, focus, mantra, diaphragmatic breathing, whatever. That's okay. But what we know about people is the easier something is to do, the more likely they're going to be to do it. So that's one of the first things I do. Another very quick tool that's Ethan's number two tool is something that I call temporal distancing. That's a form of mental time travel. This is what I often describe as my 2 a.m. chatter strategy. What I mean by that is every four to six weeks, I will wake up at 2 a.m. with chatter. It's not necessarily predictable when it's going to happen, but it happens every four to six weeks. The course it takes when it does happen, though, is pretty consistent. So something has happened at work. I then lose my job, lose my family, go to jail, and die. All within a matter of like three seconds. Yeah, it's terrible. It's awful, right? And you wake up with that, and it's paralyzing. And then what do you do? And and, and this is a, a source of insomnia for many people. My fix is really easy. I think to myself, how am I going to feel about this tomorrow morning or next week? No matter how bad the chatter is at 2 a.m., it is always better the next morning when my brain is fully awake and replenished and I can think constructively about the problem. When we get stuck in chatter, we tend to fixate on how awful the experience is in that moment. What we lose sight of is the fact that all of our emotions come and eventually go. This is a trajectory. It's a shape that characterizes many different emotional responses, right? They, they peak and then they eventually, they eventually gradually subside. Even a panic attack, which is an extreme set of emotions, only lasts on average between 10 and 15 minutes, you know, and it always blows people's minds when I share that with them. That's right. That's right. And and simply like you sharing that with people does an amazing it is an amazing gift because when you explain this to people what it does for them is it gives them hope that they're going to feel better because part of the the conundrum of chatter or the paradox as you described it is is we feel hopeless we can't see the light at the end of the tunnel and so what mental time travel or temporal distancing does is it highlights the fact that what you're going through is impermanent. It will eventually fade. Let's say I'm struggling. So if I think, how am I going to feel about this next week? I know I always feel better by, you know, in a couple mm. of days, if not hours. That highlights the instability of what I'm experiencing. It gives me hope that the situations are going to improve. And that's a powerful bomb for a chatter prone mind. Now, one point I want to get in there is with respect to expectations for these strategies. Some people ask me, Really? These are just going to wipe out your chatter and make you like start doing like skipping across your neighborhood with with smiles across your face? No, that's not how these strategies work. What these strategies do is they turn the volume down on the chatter. They bring the volume down just enough to allow you to re-engage more constructively 
with your problems and your lives. They don't magically wash away your problems. You wouldn't want to do that because our problems are opportunities to grow and learn, right? But we want to be able to work with those problems without them taking over entirely. And that's how these strategies work. It's a modulation process. We picked up on this earlier about nature and being in nature. And I think one of the the aspects that comes out of that, the benefits is the sense of awe. And you describe that as a way to modulate the inner voice. And it does so by shrinking the self. How does that work? Awe is an emotion we experience when we're in the presence of something vast and and it's seemingly indescribable, something bigger than ourselves. And different people have different awe triggers. A lot of people find awe in nature. So you're at the beach this morning, and I imagine where you are is pretty awe-inspiring to just look out this natural beauty. When you're experiencing that emotion, what it does is it leads to this phenomenon of this shrinking self. So we feel smaller when we're contemplating something vast and indescribable. And when we feel smaller, so do our problems. So Awe is an emotion that helps us put things in perspective. Like here I am, I'm worrying about that little verbal foot in the mouth experience I had yesterday with a couple of students in my office, right? There are people dealing with how to, you know, transport people from one planet to another. Come on, let's, let's put this in perspective. So, so that's how awe works and, you know, nature is filled with it. So that's one place you could find it. I think we've got time for one last fix or trick for modulating our inner voice and it's, it's compensatory control. It's kind of like allowing your inner control freak to take over. Can you talk us through that one? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked about that. So here's a little, maybe this is a, a TMI about me, but I'm a pretty go with the flow kind of guy. And that spills over into how I maybe like keep my office, like the conditions of my physical spaces. So you might see a trail of clothing from the shower to the closet. And my wife is always, you know, after me to pick up my stuff. Yet when I experience chatter, I instantly do something that is very out of character for me. I pick all the clothing up and I neatly put it away. I organize my office, I make piles of things, and I will even masochistically go into my children's rooms and sometimes put their things away. Turns out this is an incredibly common behavior. What people are doing is they are trying to compensate for the lack of order and control they're they're feeling in their minds. When they're feeling chatter, it's like the thoughts are pinging all over the place. We're not in control anymore. We human beings love control. All of us do. Like we are control freaks to a certain degree. We like to know that the world is orderly and predictable. And so when you're experiencing chatter, you lose, you lose that sense of control. What we've learned is you can compensate for that by creating order around you, by organizing your spaces. So cleaning up and organizing, that's one way of compensating for the lack of control that chatter triggers. Another thing you could do is engage in a ritual. A ritual is a, a rigid sequence of behaviors that are infused with meaning that we do the same way every time, right? So it's something that you have control over. This is why athletes the world over develop these rituals Mm. to engage in before stressful activities. Now, the caveat to both of these tools is you don't want to do them in excess. People who suffer from certain forms of anxiety become overly reliant on rituals and cleaning and organizing. So you don't want to take these tactics to an extreme But that's also a case with all of the strategies that we've been talking about. By way of an analogy, a hammer 
can be a really effective tool. It can be a source of beauty. And, you know, I built, I didn't build anything, but we built our house with a hammer, right? Or, and other tools, but a hammer can be a murder weapon too. It can be a source of destruction if it's wielded inappropriately. That's true of every tool. You know, so using these tools in the right proportions, mm. I think is really important to keep in mind. Okay. Ethan, that was all super helpful. Thank you so much. Well, thanks so much for having me. Great conversation. Yeah, right. So that was a bit of a life hacky episode, but Ethan's work does tend to be heavily backed by research and the tips that he shares are not about a whiplash about face. Instead, they work with and to who we actually are, to our real humanity. Our minds, remember, chatter for a reason and for a really good reason. And as he says, and I love this, we didn't evolve to be in the moment. You know, it's a bit of a superpower of being human that we can go back and get nostalgic and we can plan for the future. So let's not fight this with rigid adherence and misinterpreted understandings of Eastern philosophies. Let's instead find a sweet spot with it all. So let's repeat some of those tips for modulating like a ninja or like His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Here they are again. The first, perhaps think twice before venting. It might seem natural to want to get things off your chest, but it could alienate you from others. Number two, if you do need to vent, choose a board of advisors, as he says it, people who won't just indulge you as you go further down the ruminating suck hole. Third, Get some distance, and you can do this by doing, what is it, some distance self-talk. He says, use your name and the second person you to refer to yourself when you're talking to yourself in your head. Another technique, and this is the fourth one, is to get distance by using temporal distancing. Number four, another way to get distance is by using mental time travelling. So at three in the morning, you're going round and round with some ruminating thoughts, Think to yourself, how will I feel about all of this in the morning? Number five, go for a hike. Hug a tree. Look at all inspiring sunsets or oceans. Again, this will give you perspective and distance, but it'll also distract yourself in a really helpful way. And finally, create external order. You know, clean out your sock drawer or whatever. It will distract you and once again in a really good way. I'd also add, and this is my tip, Make friends with your thinking. I'm a super fretty thinker and I do tend to lie awake at night ruminating. It can keep me up for hours. But this is something that I wrote in First We Make the Beast Beautiful. All right. Insomnia is a cry from our core to spend reflective time with ourselves. As British philosopher Alain de Botton put it, it's an inarticulate, maddening, but ultimately healthy plea released by our core self that we confront the issues we're put off for too long. Insomnia isn't really to do with our not being able to sleep. It's about not having given ourselves a chance to think. De Baton argues that this need to reflect quietly, to reacquaint ourselves with ourselves, without the distraction and obligations of our daylight selves, outweighs the benefits of sleep. And so we subliminally make the call, think, not sleep. I add, I come to deep, hurtful, but ultimately growth-creating realisations at night. In daylight, I struggle to see my true weaknesses and I wear masks during the day. The eeriness, the loneliness, the expansiveness, the out-of-syncness of 4am sees me delve into truths and realisations I wouldn't otherwise. When I can't sleep, 
I remind myself that it might just be about a need to reacquaint myself with myself. Okay, I wish you all much wildness on the road ahead and I will see you next episode. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.